Book One, Chapter Seven of the Lancashire Witches. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Andy Minter. The Lancashire Witches, A Romance of Pendle Forest, by William Harrison Ainsworth. Book One, Alison Device, Chapter Seven, The Ruined Conventual Church. Beneath a wild cherry tree, planted by chance in the abbey gardens, and of such remarkable size that it almost rivalled the elms and lime trees surrounding it, and when in bloom resembled an enormous garland, stood two young maidens, both of rare beauty, though in totally different styles, the one being fair-haired and blue-eyed, with a snowy skin tinged with delicate bloom, like that of roses seen through milk, to borrow a simile from old Anacreon while the other far eclipsed her in the brilliancy of her complexion, the dark splendour of her eyes, and the luxuriance of her jetty tresses, which, unbound and knotted with ribbons, flowed down almost to the ground. In age there was little disparity between them, though perhaps the dark-haired girl might be a year nearer twenty than the other, and somewhat more of seriousness, though not much, sat upon her lovely countenance than on the other's laughing features. Different were they, too, in degree, and here social position was infinitely in favour of the fairer girl, but no one would have judged it so, if not previously acquainted with their history. Indeed, it was rather the one having the least title to be proud, if any one has such a title, who now seemed to look up to her companion with mingled admiration and regard, the latter being enthralled at the moment by the rich notes of a thrush poured from a neighbouring lime-tree. Pleasant was the garden where the two girls stood, shaded by great trees, laid out in exquisite parterres with knots and figures, quaint flower-beds, shorn trees and hedges, covered alleys and arbours, terraces and mounds, in the taste of the time, and above all an admirably kept bowling-green. It was bounded on the one hand by the ruined chapter-house and vestry of the old monastic structure, and on the other by the stately pile of buildings formerly making part of the abbot's lodging, in which the long gallery was situated, some of its windows looking upon the bowling-green, and then kept in excellent condition, but now roofless and desolate. Behind them, on the right, half hidden by trees, lay the desecrated and despoiled conventual church, reared at such cost and with so much magnificence by thirteen abbots, the great work having been commenced, as heretofore stated, by Robert de Topcliffe in 1330, and only completed in all its details by John Paslew, this splendid structure surpassing, according to Whitaker, many cathedrals in extent, was now abandoned to the slow ravages of decay. Would it had never encountered worse enemy! But some half-century later the hand of man was called in to accelerate its destruction, and it was then almost entirely razed to the ground. At the period in question, though, partially unroofed and with some of the walls destroyed, it was still beautiful and picturesque, more picturesque, indeed, than in the days of its pride and splendour. The tower, with its lofty crocketed spire, was still standing, though the latter was cracked and tottering and the jackdaws roosted within its windows and belfry. Two ranges of broken columns told of the bygone glories of the aisles, and the beautiful side-chapels, having escaped injury better than other parts of the fabric, remained in tolerable preservation. 
but the choir and high altar were stripped of all their rich carving and ornaments, and the rain descended through the open rood-loft upon the now grass-grown graves of the abbots in the presbytery. Here and there the ramified mullions still retained their wealth of painted glass, and the grand eastern window shone gorgeously as of yore. All else was neglect and ruin. Briars and turf usurped the place of the marble pavement. Many of the pillars were festooned with ivy, and in some places the shattered walls were covered with creepers, and trees had taken root in the crevices of the masonry. Beautiful at all times were these magnificent ruins, but never so beautiful as when seen by the witching light of the moon, the hour, according to the best authority, when all ruins should be viewed, when the long lines of broken pillars, the mouldering arches, and the still glowing panes over the altar had a magical effect. In front of the maidens stood a square tower, part of the defences of the religious establishment erected by Abbot Lindley in the reign of Edward III, but disused and decaying. It was sustained by high and richly groined arches, crossing the swift mill-race and facing the river. A path led through the ruined chapter-house to the spacious cloister quadrangle, once used as a cemetery for the monks, but now converted into a kitchen-garden, its broad area being planted out and fruit-trees trained against its hoary walls. Little of the old refectory was left, except the dilapidated stairs, once conducting to the gallery, where the brethren were wont to take their meals, but the inner wall still served to enclose the garden on that side. Of the dormitory, formerly constituting the eastern angle of the cloisters, the shell was still left, and it was used partly as a grange, partly as a shed for cattle, the farmyard and tenements lying on this side. Thus it will be seen that the garden and grounds filling up the ruins of Whaley Abbey afforded abundant points of picturesque attraction, all of which, with the exception of the ruined conventual church, had been visited by the two girls. They had tracked the labyrinth of passages, scaled the broken staircases, crept into the roofless and neglected chambers, peered timorously into the black and yawning vaults, and now, having finished their investigations, had paused for a while, previous to extending their ramble to the church, beneath the wild cherry-tree, to listen to the warbling of the birds. "'You should hear the nightingales at Middleton, Alison,' observed Dorothy Asherton, breaking silence. "'They sing even more exquisitely than yon thrush. You must come and see them. I should like to show you the old house and gardens, though they are very different from these, and we have no ancient monastic ruins to ornament them. Still, they are very beautiful, and as I find you are fond of flowers, I will show you some I have reared myself, for I am something of a gardener, Alison. Promise you will come?' "'I wish I dared promise it,' replied Alison. "'And why not, then?' cried Dorothy. "'What should prevent you? "'Do you know, Alison, what I should like to do better than all? "'You are so amiable and so good, so very pretty. "'They don't blush. "'There is no one by to hear me. "'You are so charming altogether. "'I should like you to come and live with me. "'You shall be my handmaiden, if you will.' "'I should desire nothing better, sweet young lady,' replied Alison. "'But—' "'But what?' cried Dorothy. "'You have only your own consent to obtain.' "'Alas, I have,' replied Alison. "'How can that be?' cried Dorothy, with a disappointed look. "'It is not likely your mother will stand in the way of your advancement, and you have not, I suppose, any other tie. 
Nay, forgive me if I appear too inquisitive. My curiosity only proceeds from the interest I take in you. I know it, I feel it, dear kind young lady, replied Alison, with the colour again mounting her cheeks. I have no tie in the world except my family, but I am persuaded my mother will never allow me to quit her, however great the advantage might be to me. Well, though sorry, I am scarcely surprised at it, said Dorothy. She must love you too dearly to part with you. I wish I could think so, sighed Alison. Proud of me in some sort, though with little reason she may be, but love me most assuredly she does not. Nay more, I am persuaded that she would be glad to be freed from my presence, which is an evident restraint and annoyance to her, were it not for some motive stronger than natural affection that binds her to me. Now in good sooth you amaze me, Alison cried Dorothy. What possible motive can it be, if not of affection? Of interest, I think, replied Alison. I speak to you without reserve, dear young lady, for the sympathy you have shown me deserves and demands confidence on my part, and there are none with whom I can freely converse, so that every emotion has been locked up in my own bosom. My mother fancies I shall one day be of use to her, and therefore keeps me with her. Hints to this effect she has thrown out when indulging in the uncontrollable fits of passion to which she is liable. And yet I have no just reason to complain, for though she has shown me little maternal tenderness, and repelled all exhibition of affection on my part, she has treated me very differently from her other children, and with much greater consideration. I can make slight boast of education, but the best the village could afford has been given me, and I have derived much religious culture from good Dr. Ormerod. The kind ladies of the vicarage proposed, as you have done, that I should live with them, but my mother forbade it, enjoining me on peril of incurring her displeasure not to leave her, and reminding me of all the benefits I have received from her, and of the necessity of making an adequate return. And ungrateful indeed I should be if I did not comply, for, though her manner is cold and harsh to me, she has never ill-used me, as she has done her favourite child, my little sister Janet, but has always allowed me a separate chamber where I can retire when I please, to read or meditate or pray. For, alas, dear young lady, I dare not pray before my mother. Be not shocked at what I tell you, but I cannot hide it. My poor mother denies herself the consolation of religion, never addresses herself to heaven in prayer, never opens the book of life and truth, never enters church. In her own mistaken way she has brought up poor little Janet, who has been taught to make a scoff at religious truths and ordinances, and has never been suffered to keep holy the Sabbath day. Happy and thankful am I that no such evil lessons have been taught me but rather that I have profited by the sad example. In my own secret chamber I have prayed, daily and nightly, for both, prayed that their hearts might be turned. Often I have besought my mother to let me take Janet to church, but she never would consent. And in that poor misguided child, dear young lady, there is a strange mixture of good and ill, afflicted with personal deformity and delicate in health, the mind, perhaps, sympathising with the body. She is wayward and uncertain in temper, but sensitive and keenly alive to kindness, and with a shrewdness beyond her years. At the risk of offending my mother, for I felt confident I was acting rightly, I have endeavoured to instil religious principles into her heart, 
and to inspire her with a love of truth. Sometimes she has listened to me, and I have observed strange struggles in her nature, as if the good were obtaining mastery of the evil principle, and I have striven the more to convince her and win her over, but never with entire success, for my efforts have been overcome by pernicious counsels and sceptical sneers. Oh, dear young lady, what would I not do to be the instrument of her salvation? You pain me much by this relation, Alison, said Dorothy Asherton, who had listened with profound attention, and I now wish more ardently than ever to take you from such a family. I cannot leave them, dear young lady, replied Alison, for I fear that I may be of infinite service, especially to Janet, by staying with them. Where there is a soul to be saved, especially the soul of one dear as a sister, no sacrifice can be too great to make, no price too heavy to pay. By the blessing of heaven I hope to save her, and that is the great tie that binds me to a home, only so in name. "'I will not oppose your virtuous intentions, dear Alison,' replied Dorothy. "'But I must now mention a circumstance in connection with your mother, of which you are perhaps in ignorance.' but which it is right you should know, and therefore no false delicacy on my part shall restrain me from mentioning it. Your grandmother, old Demdike, is in very ill repute in Pendle, and is stigmatised by the common folk, and even by others, as a witch. Your mother, too, shares in the opprobium attaching to her. "'I dreaded this,' replied Alison, turning deathly pale and trembling violently. "'I feared you had heard the terrible report.' "'But, oh, believe it not! My poor mother is erring enough, but she is not so bad as that. Oh, believe it not!' "'I will not believe it,' said Dorothy, "'since she is blessed with such a daughter as you. But what I fear is that you, you so kind, so good, so beautiful, may come under the same ban. "'I must run this risk also in the good work I have appointed myself,' replied Alison. "'If I am ill thought of by men, I shall have the approval of my conscience to uphold me. "'Whatever be tied, and whatever be said, do not you think ill of me, dear young lady?' "'Fear it not,' returned Dorothy earnestly. "'While thus conversing, they gradually strayed away from the cherry-tree, "'and taking a winding path leading in that direction, "'entered the conventual church about the middle of the south aisle.' After gazing with wonder and delight at the still majestic pillars, that, like ghosts of the departed brethren, seemed to protest against the desolation around them, they took their way along the nave, through broken arches and over prostrate fragments of stone, to the eastern extremity of the fane, and having admired the light shafts and clerestory windows of the choir, as well as the magnificent painted glass over the altar, they stopped before an arched doorway on the right, with two Gothic niches, in one of which was a small stone statue of St. Agnes with her lamb, and in the other a similar representation of St. Margaret, crowned and piercing the dragon with a cross. Both were sculptures of much merit, and it was wonderful they had escaped destruction. The door was closed, but it easily opened when tried by Dorothy, and they found themselves in a small but beautiful chapel. What struck them chiefly in it was a magnificent monument of white marble, enriched with numerous small shields, painted and gilt, supporting two recumbent figures, representing Henry de Lacy, one of the founders of the abbey, and his consort. The knight was cased in plate armour, 
covered with a surcoat emblazoned with his arms, and his feet resting upon a hound. This superb monument was wholly uninjured, the painting and gilding being still fresh and bright. Behind it a flag had been removed, discovering a flight of steep stone steps leading to a vault or other subterranean chamber. After looking round this chapel, Dorothy remarked, "'There is something else that has just occurred to me. When a child a strange dark tale was told me to the effect that the last ill-fated abbot of Whaley laid his dying curse upon your grandmother, then an infant, predicting that she should be a witch and the mother of witches.' "'I have heard the dread tradition, too,' rejoined Alison, "'but I cannot, will not, believe it. "'The all-benign power would never sanction such terrible imprecations.' "'Far be it from me to affirm the contrary,' replied Dorothy. "'But it is undoubted that some families have been and are "'under the influence of an inevitable fatality. "'In one respect, connected with the same unfortunate prelate, "'I might instance our own family.' Abbot Paslew is said to be unlucky to us, even in his grave. If such a curse as I have described hangs over the head of your family, all your efforts to remove it will be ineffectual.' "'I trust not,' said Alison. "'Oh, dear young lady, you have now penetrated the secret of my heart. The mystery of my life is laid open to you. Disguise it as I may, I cannot but believe my mother to be under some baneful influence.' Her unholy life, her strange actions, all impress me with the idea. And there is the same tendency in Janet. "'You have a brother, have you not?' inquired Dorothy. "'I have,' returned Alison, slightly colouring. "'But I see little of him, for he lives near my grandmother in Pendle Forest, and always avoids me in his rare visits here. You will think it strange when I tell you I have never beheld my grandmother Demdike.' "'I am glad to hear it,' exclaimed Dorothy. "'I have never even been to Pendle,' pursued Alison, "'though Janice and my mother go there frequently. "'At one time I much wished to see my aged relative "'and pressed my mother to take me with her, but she refused, "'and now I have no desire to go.' "'Strange!' exclaimed Dorothy. "'Everything you tell me strengthens the idea I conceived the moment I saw you, and which my brother also entertained that you are not the daughter of Elizabeth Device. "'Did your brother think this?' cried Alison eagerly. But she immediately cast down her eyes. "'He did,' replied Dorothy, not noticing her confusion. "'It is impossible,' he said, "'that that lovely girl can be sprung from—but I will not wound you by adding the rest.' "'I cannot disown my kindred,' said Alison. Still. I must confess that some notions of the sort have crossed me, arising probably from my mother's extraordinary treatment, and from many other circumstances which, though trifling in themselves, were not without weight in leading me to the conclusion. Hitherto I have treated it only as a passing fancy. But if you and Master Richard Asherton—and her voice slightly faltered as she pronounced the name—think so— it may warrant me in more seriously considering the matter. "'Do consider it most seriously, dear Alison,' cried Dorothy. "'I have made up my mind, and Richard has made up his mind, too, that you are not Mother Demdike's granddaughter, nor Elizabeth Device's daughter, nor Janet's sister, nor any relation of theirs. We are sure of it, and we will have you of our mind.' 
The fair and animated speaker could not help noticing the blushes that mantled Alison's cheeks as she spoke, but she attributed them to other than the true cause. Nor did she mend the matter as she proceeded. "'I'm sure you're well born, Alison,' she said, "'and so it will be found in the end. And Richard thinks so too, for he has said so to me. And Richard is my oracle, Alison.' In spite of herself, Alison's eyes sparkled with pleasure, but she speedily checked the emotion. "'I must not indulge the dream,' she said with a sigh. "'Why not?' cried Dorothy. "'I will have strict inquiries made as to your history.' "'I cannot consent to it,' replied Alison. "'I cannot leave one who, if she be not my parent, has stood to me in that relation. Neither can I have her brought into trouble on my account.' "'What will she think of me if she learns I have indulged such a notion? "'She will say, and with truth, that I am the most ungrateful of human beings, "'as well as the most unnatural of children. "'No, dear young lady, it must not be. "'These fancies are brilliant but fallacious, "'and like bubbles burst as soon as formed. "'I admire your sentiments, though I do not admit the justice of your reasoning,' "'rejoined Dorothy.' "'It is not on your own account merely, though that is much, "'that the secret of your birth, if there be one, ought to be cleared up, "'but for the sake of those with whom you are connected. "'There may be a mother like mine weeping for you as lost, "'a brother like Richard mourning you as dead. "'Think of the sad hearts your restoration will make joyful. "'As to Elizabeth Device, no consideration should be shown her if she has stolen you from your parents as i suspect she deserves no pity all oh, this is mere surmise dear young lady replied alison at this juncture they were startled by seeing an old woman come from behind the monument and plant herself before them both uttered a cry and would have fled but a gesture from the crone detained them very old was she and of strange and sinister aspect almost blind, bent double, with frosted brows and chin, and shaking with palsy. "'Stay where you are,' cried the hag, in an imperious tone. "'I want to speak to you. Come nearer to me, my pretty wains. Nearer! Nearer!' And as they complied, drawn towards her by an impulse they could not resist, the old woman caught hold of Alison's arm, and said, with a chuckle, "'So, you are the wench they call Alison Device, eh?' "'Aye,' replied Alison, trembling like a dove in the talons of a hawk. "'Do you know who I am?' cried the hag, grasping her yet more tightly. "'Do you know who I am, I say? If not, I'll tell you. I'm Mother Chattox of Pendle Forest, the rival of Mother Demdike and the enemy of all her accursed brood.' "'Now do you know me, wench? Men call me witch. Whether I am or not, I have some power, as they and you shall find. Mother Demdike has often defied me, often injured me, but I will have my revenge on her. <laughs> Aye. "'Let me go!' cried Alison, greatly terrified. "'I will run and bring assistance,' cried Dorothy and she flew to the door, but it resisted her attempts to open it. "'Come back!' screamed the hag. "'You strive in vain. The door is fast shut, fast shut. Come back, I say.' "'Oh, you!' 
she added, as the maid drew near, ready to sink with terror. "'Your vice is an Asherton's vice. "'I know you now. "'You're Dorothy Asherton. "'Where's skin blue-eyed Dorothy? "'Listen to me, Dorothy. "'I owe your family a grudge. "'And if you provoke me, "'I'll pay it off in part on you. "'Stay not as you value your life.' "'The poor girl did not dare to move, "'and Alison remained as if fascinated "'by the terrible old woman.' "'I'll tell you what has happened, Dorothy. "'I came here to Whaley on business of my own. "'Meddling with no one, harming no one. "'Tread upon the adder and it'll bite, "'and when molested I bite like the adder. "'Your cousin, Nick Casherton, came in my way, "'called me witch and menaced me. "'I cursed him. <laughs> "'And then your brother Richard.' "'What of him in heaven's name?' almost shrieked Alison. "'As this!' exclaimed Mother Chattox, placing her hand on the beating heart of the girl. "'What of Richard Asherton?' repeated Alison. "'You love him! I feel you do, wench!' cried the old crone, with fierce exultation. "'Release me, wicked woman!' cried Alison. "'Wicked am I? <laughs> "'rejoined Mother Chattox, chuckling maliciously. "'Because forsooth I read thy heart, and betray its secrets. "'Wicked, eh? I'll tell thee, wench, again. "'Richard Asherton is lord and master here. "'Every pulse in thy bosom beats for him, for him alone. "'But beware of his love, beware it, I say. "'It shall bring thee ruin and despair.' "'For pity's sake, release me!' "'implored Alison. "'Not yet,' replied the inexorable old woman. "'Not yet. "'My tale is not half told. "'My curse fell on Richard's head "'as it did on Nicholas's. "'And then the Elhounds thought to catch me, "'but they were at fault. "'I tricked them nicely. <laughs> "'However, they took my Nance, "'my pretty Nance.' They seized her, bound her, bore her to the colder, and they swam her. Curses light on them. All, all. The chief on him who did it. Who was he? inquired Alison, tremblingly. Jem Device, replied the old woman. It was he who bound her, he who plunged her in the river, he who swam her. But I'll pinch and plague him for it. I'll throw his couch with nettles, and all wholesome food shall be poisoned to him. His blood shall be as water, and his flesh shrink from his bones. He shall waste away slowly, 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 till he drops like a skeleton into the grave ready digged for him. All connected with him shall feel my fury. I would kill thee now, if thou wert aught of his. Aught of his? What mean you, old woman? demanded Alison. By this, rejoined Mother Chattox, and let the knowledge work in thee to the confusion of best device. Thou art not her daughter. It is as I thought, cried Dorothy Asherton, roused by the intelligence from her terror. Now tell thee not this secret to pleasure thee, continued Mother Chattox, but to confound Elizabeth Device. I have no other motive. She hath provoked my vengeance, and she shall fail it. "'Thou art not her child, I say. 
The secret of thy birth is known to me, but the time is not yet come for its disclosure. It shall out one day, to the confusion of them who offend me. When thou goest home, tell thy reputed mother what I have said, and mark how she takes information. Ha! <laughs> ha! Who comes here? The hag's last exclamation was occasioned by the sudden appearance of Mistress Nutter, who opened the door of the chapel, and, staring in astonishment at the group, came quickly forward. "'What makes you here, Mother Chattox?' she cried. "'I came to abide pursuit,' replied the old hag, with a cowed manner, and in accents sounding strangely submissive after her late infuriated tone. "'What have you been saying to these girls?' demanded Mistress Nutter, authoritatively. "'Ask them. The hag replied. "'She declares that Alison is not the daughter of Elizabeth Device,' cried Dorothy Asherton. "'Indeed!' exclaimed Mistress Nutter quickly, and, as if a spring of extraordinary interest had been suddenly touched, "'What reason hast thou for this assertion?' "'No good reason,' replied the old woman, evasively, yet with evident apprehension of her questioner. "'Good reason or bad, I will have it,' cried Mistress Nutter. "'What, you take an interest in this wench like the rest?' returned Mother Chattox. "'Is she so very winning?' "'That is no answer to my question,' said the lady. "'Whose child is she?' "'Ask best device or Mother Demdike,' replied Mother Chattox. "'They know more about the matter than me.' "'I will have thee speak unto the purpose,' cried the lady angrily. "'Many a one who's lost a child would gladly have it back again,' said the old hag mysteriously. "'Who has lost one?' asked Mistress Nutter. "'Nay, it passeth me to tell,' replied the old woman, with affected ignorance. "'Question those who stole her. I've set you on the track. If you fail in pursuing it, come to me.' "'You know where to find me.' "'You shall not go thus,' said Mistress Nutter. "'I will have a direct answer now.' And as she spoke, she waved her hands twice or thrice over the old woman. In doing this her figure seemed to dilate, and her countenance underwent a marked and fearful change. All her beauty vanished, her eyes blazed, and terror sat on her wrinkled brow. The hag, on the contrary, crouched lower down, and seemed to dwindle less than her ordinary size, writhing as from heavy blows, and with a mixture of malice and fear in her countenance, she cried, "'When I to speak, you wouldn't thank me. Let me go!' "'Answer!' vociferated Mistress Nutter, disregarding the caution, and speaking in a sharp, piercing voice, strangely contrasting with her ordinary utterance. "'Answer, I say, or I will beat thee to the dust!' And she continued her gestures, while the sufferings of the old hag evidently increased, and she crouched nearer and nearer to the ground, moaning out the words, "'Do not force me to speak! I'll repent it! I'll repent it!' "'Do not torment her thus, madam,' cried Alison, who, with Dorothy, looked at the strange scene with mingled apprehension and wonderment. "'Much as I desire to know the secret of my birth, I would not obtain it thus.' As she uttered these words, the old woman contrived to shuffle off, and disappeared behind the tomb. 
"'Why did you interpose, Alison?' cried Mistress Nutter, somewhat angrily, and dropping her hands. "'You broke the power I had over her. I would have compelled her to speak.' "'I thank you, gracious lady, for your consideration,' replied Alison gratefully. "'But the sight was too painful.' "'What has become of her? Where is she gone?' cried Dorothy, peeping behind the tomb. "'She has crept into this vault, I suppose.' "'Do not trouble yourself about her more, Dorothy,' said Mistress Nutter, resuming her wanted voice and wanted looks. "'Let us return to the house. Thus much is ascertained, Alison.' that you are no child of your supposed parent. Wait a little, and the rest shall be found out for you, and in the meantime be assured that I take a strong interest in you. That we all do, added Dorothy. Thank you, thank you, exclaimed Alison, almost overpowered. With this they went forth, and traversing the shafted aisle, quitted the conventual church, and took their way along the alley leading to the garden. "'Say not a word at present to Elizabeth Device of the information you have obtained, Alison,' observed Mistress Nutter. "'I have reasons for this counsel, which I will afterwards explain to you. And do you keep silence on the subject, Dorothy?' "'May I not tell Richard?' said the young lady. "'Not Richard, nor any one,' returned Mistress Nutter, "'or you may seriously affect Alison's prospects.' "'You have cautioned me in time,' cried Dorothy, "'for here comes my brother with our cousin Nicholas.' And as she spoke, a turn in the alley showed Richard and Nicholas Asherton advancing towards them. A strange resolution had been produced in Alison's feelings by the events of the last half-hour. The opinions expressed by Dorothy Asherton as to her birth had been singularly confirmed by Mother Chattox. But could reliance be placed on the old woman's assertions? Might they not have been made with a mischievous intent? And was it not possible, nay probable, that in her place of concealment behind the tomb, the vindictive hag had overheard the previous conversation with Dorothy, and based her own declaration upon it? All these suggestions occurred to Alison, but the previous idea having once gained admission to her breast, soon established itself firmly there, in spite of doubts and misgivings, and began to mix itself up with new thoughts and wishes, which with other persons were connected, for she could not help fancying she might be well born. And if so, the vast distance heretofore existing between her and Richard Asherton might be greatly diminished, if not altogether removed. So rapid is the progress of thought, that only a few minutes were required for this long train of reflections to pass through her mind and it was merely put to flight by the approach of the main object of her thoughts. On joining the party, Richard Asherton saw plainly that something had happened, but as both his sister and Alison laboured under evident embarrassment, he abstained from making inquiries as to its cause for the present, hoping a better opportunity of doing so would occur, and the conversation was kept up by Nicholas Asherton, who described in his wanted lively manner the encounter with Mother Chattox and Nance Redfern, the swimming of the latter, and the trickery and punishment of Potts. During the recital, Mistress Nutter often glanced uneasily at the two girls, but neither of them offered any interruption until Nicholas had finished, when Dorothy, taking her brother's hand, said, with a look of affectionate admiration, "'You acted like yourself, dear Richard.' Alison did not venture to give utterance to the same sentiment, but her looks plainly expressed it. 
"'I only wish you had punished that cruel James Device as well as saved poor Nance,' added Dorothy. "'Hush!' exclaimed Richard, glancing at Alison. "'You need not be afraid of hurting her feelings,' cried the young lady. "'She does not mind him now.' "'What do you mean, Dorothy?' cried Richard, in surprise. "'Oh, nothing, nothing,' she replied hastily. "'Perhaps you will explain,' said Richard to Alison. "'Indeed I cannot.' she answered in confusion. "'You would have laughed to see Potts creep out of the river,' said Nicholas, turning to Dorothy. "'He looked just like a drowned rat. Ha!' "'You have made a bitter enemy of him, Nicholas,' observed Mistress Nutter. "'So look well to yourself.' "'I heed him not,' rejoined the squire. "'He knows me now too well to meddle with me again, and I shall take good care before I put myself in his power.' "'One thing I may mention, to show the impotent malice of the knave, "'just as he was setting off, he said, "'This is not the only discovery of witchcraft I have made to-day. "'I have another case nearer home. "'What could he mean?' "'I know not,' replied Mistress Nutter, "'a shade of disquietude passing over her countenance. "'But he is quite capable of bringing the charge against you or any of us.' "'He is so,' said Nicholas. "'After what has occurred, I wonder whether he will go over to Roughley to-morrow.' "'Very likely not,' replied Mistress Nutter. "'And in that case, Master Roger Nowell must provide some other person competent to examine the boundary line of the properties on his behalf.' "'Then you are confident of the adjudication being in your favour, said Nicholas. "'Quite so,' replied Mistress Nutter, with a self-satisfied smile. "'The result, I hope, may justify your expectation,' said Nicholas. "'But it is right to tell you that Sir Ralph, in consenting to postpone his decision, has only done so out of consideration to you. If the division of the properties be as represented by him, Master Noel will unquestionably obtain an award in his favour. "'Under such circumstances he may,' said Mistress Nutter. "'But you will find the contrary turn out to be the fact.' "'I will show you a plan I have had lately prepared, and you can then judge for yourself.' While thus conversing, the party passed through a door in the high stone wall dividing the garden from the court, and proceeded towards the principal entrance of the mansion. Built out of the ruins of the abbey, which had served as a very convenient quarry for the construction of this edifice, as well as for Portfield, the house was large and irregular, planned chiefly with the view of embodying part of the old abbot's lodgings, and consisting of a wide front with two wings, one of which looked into the court, and the other comprehending the long gallery into the garden. The old north-east gate of the abbey, with its lofty archway and embattled walls, served as an entrance to the great courtyard, and at its wicket ordinarily stood Ned Huddlestone, the porter, though he was absent on the present occasion, being occupied with the May-day festivities. Immediately opposite the gateway sprang a flight of stone steps, with a double landing-place and a broad balustrade of the same material, on the lowest pillar of which was placed a large escutcheon, sculpted with the arms of the family, argent, a mullet, sable, with a rebus on the name, an ash on a ton. The great door to which these steps conducted stood wide open, and before it on the upper landing-place were collected Lady Asherton, Mistress Bradill, Mistress Nicholas Asherton, and some other dames, laughing and conversing together. 
Some long-eared spaniels, favourites of the lady of the house, were chasing each other up and down the steps, disturbing the slumbers of a couple of fine bloodhounds in the courtyard, or persecuting the proud peafowl that strutted about to display their gorgeous plumage to the spectators. On seeing the party approach, Lady Asherton came down to meet them. "'You have long been absent,' she said to Dorothy, "'but I suppose you have been exploring the ruins.' "'Yes, we have not left a hole or corner unvisited,' was the reply. "'That is right,' said Lady Asherton. "'I knew you would make a good guide, Dorothy. "'Of course you have often seen the old conventual church before, Alison.' "'I am ashamed to say I have not, your ladyship,' she replied. "'Indeed!' exclaimed Lady Asherton. "'And yet you have lived all your life in the village.' "'Quite true, your ladyship,' answered Alison. "'But these ruins have been prohibited to me.' "'Not by us,' said Lady Asherton. "'They are open to every one.' "'I was forbidden to visit them by my mother,' said Alison. And for the first time the word mother seemed strange to her. Lady Asherton looked shocked, but made no remark, and mounting the steps led the way to a spacious, though not very lofty, chamber, with huge uncovered rafters and a floor of polished oak. Over a great fireplace at one side, furnished with immense andirons, hung a noble pair of antlers, and similar trophies of the chase were affixed to other parts of the walls. Here and there were likewise hung rusty skull-caps, breastplates, two-handed and single-handed swords, maces, halberts, and arquebuses, with chain shirts, buff jerkins, matchlocks, and other warlike implements, amongst which were several shields painted with the arms of the Ashertons and their alliances. High-backed chairs of gilt leather were ranged against the walls, and ebony cabinets inlaid with ivory were set between them at intervals, supporting rare specimens of glass and earthenware. Opposite the fireplace stood a large clock, curiously painted and decorated with emblematical devices, with the signs of the zodiac, and provided with movable figures to strike the hours on a bell, while from the centre of the roof hung a great chandelier of stag's horn. Lady Asherton did not tarry long within the entrance hall, for such it was, but conducted her guests through an arched doorway on the right into the long gallery. One hundred and fifty feet in length, and proportionately wide and lofty, this vast chamber had undergone little change since its original construction by the old owners of the abbey. Panelled and floored with lustrous oak, and hung in some parts with antique tapestry, representing scriptural subjects, one side was pierced with lofty pointed windows, looking out upon the garden, while the southern extremity boasted a magnificent window with heavy stone mullions, though of more recent workmanship than the framework commanding Whaley Nab and the river. The furniture of the apartment was grand but gloomy, and consisted of antique chairs and tables belonging to the abbey. Some curious ecclesiastical sculptures, wood-carvings, and saintly images were placed at intervals near the walls, and on the upper panels were hung a row of family portraits. Quitting the rest of the company, and proceeding to the southern window, Dorothy invited Alison and her brother to place themselves beside her on the cushioned seats of the deep embrasure. Little conversation, however, ensued, Alison's heart being too full for utterance, and recent occurrences engrossing Dorothy's thought to the exclusion of everything else. Having made one or two unsuccessful efforts to engage them in talk, Richard likewise lapsed into silence, and gazed out on the lovely scenery before him. 
The evening has been described as beautiful, and the swift calder as it hurried by was tinged with rays of the declining sun, whilst the woody heights of Whaley Nab were steeped in the same rosy light. But the view failed to interest Richard in his present mood, and after a brief survey he stole a look at Alison, and was surprised to find her in tears. "'What saddening thoughts cross you, fair girl?' he inquired with deep interest. "'I can hardly account for my sudden despondency,' she replied. "'But I have heard that great happiness is the precursor of dejection, and the saying, I suppose, must be true, for I have been happier to-day than I ever was before in my life. But the feeling of sadness is now past,' she added, smiling. "'I am glad of it,' said Richard. "'May I not know what has occurred to you?' "'Not at present,' interposed Dorothy. "'But I am sure you will be pleased when you are made acquaintance with the circumstance. I would tell you now, if I might.' "'May I guess?' said Richard. I, "'I don't know,' rejoined Dorothy, who was dying to tell him. "'May he?' "'Oh, no, no!' cried Alison. "'You are very perverse,' said Richard, with a look of disappointment. "'There can be no harm in guessing, and you can please yourself as to giving me an answer. "'I fancy, then, that Alison has made some discovery.' Dorothy nodded. "'Relative to her parentage?' pursued Richard. Another nod. "'She has found out that she is not Elizabeth Device's daughter,' said Richard. "'Some witch must have told you this!' exclaimed Dorothy. "'Have I indeed guessed rightly?' cried Richard, with an eagerness that startled his sister. "'Do not keep me in suspense. Speak plainly.' "'How am I to answer him, Alison?' said Dorothy. "'Nay, do not appeal to me, dear young lady,' she answered, blushing. "'I have gone too far to retreat,' rejoined Dorothy, "'and therefore, despite Mistress Nutter's interdiction, the truth shall be said. "'You have guessed shrewdly, Richard. "'A discovery has been made, a very great discovery. "'Alison is not the daughter of Elizabeth Device.' "'The intelligence delights me, though it scarcely surprises me,' cried Richard, "'gazing with heartfelt pleasure at the blushing girl, "'for I was sure of the fact from the first. "'Nothing so good and so charming as Alison could spring from so foul a source. "'How and by what means you have derived this information, "'as well as whose daughter you are, I shall wait patiently to learn. "'Enough for me that you are not the sister of James Device. "'Enough that you are not the grandchild of Mother Demdike.' "'You know all I know in knowing thus much,' replied Alison timidly, "'and secret has been enjoined by Mistress Nutter in order that the rest may be found out.' "'But, oh, should the hopes I have, perhaps too hastily indulged, prove fallacious?' "'They cannot be fallacious, Alison,' interrupted Richard eagerly. "'On that score rest easy. Your connection with that wretched family is for ever broken. But I can see the necessity of caution, and shall observe it. And so Mistress Nutter takes an interest in you.' "'The strongest,' replied Dorothy. "'But, see, she comes this way.' But we must now go back for a short space. While Mistress Nutter and Nicholas were seated at a table, examining a plan of the Ruffley estates, the latter was greatly astonished to see the door open and give admittance to Master Potts, who he fancied snugly lying between a couple of blankets at the dragon. The attorney was clad in a riding-dress, which he had exchanged for his wet habiliments, and was accompanied by Sir Ralph Asherton and Master Roger Nowell. 
On seeing Nicholas, he instantly stepped up to him. "'Aha, squire!' he cried. "'You did not expect to see me again so soon, eh? A pottle of hot sack put my blood into circulation, and having luckily a change of raiment in my valise, I am all right again. So, not so easily got rid of, you see.' "'So it appears,' replied Nicholas, laughing. "'We have a trifling account to settle together, sir,' said the attorney, putting on a serious look. "'Whenever you please, sir,' replied Nicholas, good-humouredly tapping the hilt of his sword. "'No, not in that way,' cried Potts, darting quickly back. "'I never fight with those weapons. Never. Our dispute must be settled in a court of law, sir, in a court of law. You understand, Master Nicholas?' "'There is a shrewd maxim, Master Potts, that he who is his own lawyer has a fool for his client.' observed Nicholas dryly. "'Would it not be better to stick for the defence of others rather than practice on your own behalf?' "'You have expressed my opinion, Master Nicholas,' observed Roger Nowell, "'and I hope Master Potts will not commence any action on his own account till he has finished my business.' "'Assuredly not, sir, since you desire it,' replied the attorney obsequiously. "'But my motives must not be mistaken.' I have a clear case of assault and battery against Master Nicholas Asherton, or I may proceed against him criminally for an attempt on my life. "'Have you given him no provocation, sir?' demanded Sir Ralph sternly. "'No provocation can justify the treatment I have experienced, Sir Ralph,' replied Potts. "'However, to show I am a man of peace, and to harbour no resentment, however just grounds I may have for such a feeling—' "'I am willing to make up the matter with Master Nicholas, provided—' "'He offers you a handsome consideration, eh?' said the squire. "'Provided he offers me a handsome apology, such as a gentleman may accept,' rejoined Potts consequentially. "'And which he will not refuse, I am sure,' said Sir Ralph, glancing at his cousin. "'I should certainly be sorry to have drowned you,' said the squire. "'Very sorry.' "'Enough, enough, I am content,' cried Potts, holding out his hand, which Nicholas grasped with an energy that brought tears into the little man's eyes. "'I am glad the matter is amicably adjusted,' observed Roger Nowell, "'for I suspect both parties have been to blame. And I must now request you, Master Potts, to forego your search and inquiries after witches, till such time as you have settled this question of the boundary-line for me.' "'One matter at a time, my good sir.' "'But, Master Noel,' cried Potts, "'my much-esteemed and singular good client—' "'I will have no nay,' interrupted Noel peremptorily. "'Hum,' muttered Potts, "'I shall lose the best chance of distinction ever thrown in my way.' "'I care not,' said Noel. "'Just as you came up, Master Noel,' observed Nicholas, I was examining a plan of the disputed estates in Pendle Forest. It differs from yours, and, if correct, certainly substantiates Mistress Nutter's claim. "'I have mine with me,' replied Noel, producing a plan and opening it. "'We can compare the two, if you please. The line runs thus. From the foot of Pendle Hill, beginning with Barley Booth, the boundary is marked by a stone wall as far as certain fields in the occupation of John Ogden. Is it not so?' "'It is,' replied Nicholas, comparing the statement with the other plan. "'It then runs on in a northerly direction,' pursued Noel, "'towards Burnt Clough, and here the landmarks are certain stones placed in the moor one hundred yards apart, 
and giving me twenty acres of this land, and Mistress Nutter ten. On the contrary, replied Nicholas, this plan gives Mistress Nutter twenty acres, and you ten. Then the plan is wrong, cried Noel sharply. It has been carefully prepared, said Mistress Nutter, who had approached the table. No matter, it is wrong, I say, cried Noel angrily. "'You see where the landmarks are placed, Master Noel,' said Nicholas, pointing to the measurement. "'I merely go by them.' "'The landmarks are improperly placed in that plan,' cried Noel. "'I will examine them myself to-morrow,' said Potts, taking out a large memorandum-book. "'There cannot be an error of ten acres. <laughs> ten perches, or ten feet, possibly, but acres? <laughs> Laugh as you please, but go on.' said Mistress Nutter. "'Well, then,' pursued Nicholas, "'the line approaches the bank of a rivulet called Moss Brook. A rare place for woodcocks and snipes, that Moss Brook, if I may remark. The land on the left consisting of five acres of wasteland, marked by a sheepfold, and two posts set up in a line with it, belonging to Mistress Nutter.' "'To Mistress Nutter?' exclaimed Noel indignantly. "'To me, you mean?' "'It is here set down to Mistress Nutter,' cried Nicholas. "'But it is set down wrongfully,' cried Noel. "'That plan is altogether incorrect.' "'On which side of the field does the rivulet flow?' inquired Potts. "'On the right,' replied Nicholas. "'On the left,' cried Noel. "'There must be some extraordinary mistake,' said Potts. "'I shall make a note of that, and examine it to-morrow.' N.B. Wasteland, Sheepfold, a rivulet called Moss Brook, flowing on the left. On the right? cried Mistress Nutter. That remains to be seen, rejoined Potts. I have made the entry as on the left. Go on, Master Nicholas, said Noel. I should like to see how many other errors that plan contains. Passing the rivulet, pursued the squire, we come to a footpath leading to the limestone quarry, about which there can be no mistake. Then by Cat Gallows Wood and Swallow Hole, and then by another path to Worston Moor, skirting a hut in the occupation of James Device. <laughs> Master Jem, are you here? I thought you dwelt with your grandmother at Malkin Tower. Excuse me, Master Noel, but one must relieve the dullness of this plan by an exclamation or so. And here, being wasteland again, the landmarks are certain stones set at intervals towards Hook Cliff, and giving Mistress Nutter two-thirds of the whole moor, and Master Rodder Noel one-third. "'False again!' cried Noel furiously. "'The two-thirds are mine, and the one-third Mistress Nutter's.' Oh, "'Something must be very wrong,' cried Nicholas. "'Very wrong indeed,' added Potts. "'And I suspect that that somebody is.' "'Master Noel,' said Mistress Nutter. "'Mistress Nutter?' cried Master Noel. "'Both are wrong, and both right, according to your own showing,' said Nicholas, laughing. "'Tomorrow we'll decide the question,' said Potts. "'Better wait till then,' interposed Sir Ralph. "'Take both plans with you, and you will then ascertain which is correct.' "'Agreed,' cried Noel. "'Here is mine.' "'And here is mine.' said Mistress Nutter. "'I will abide by the investigation. "'And Master Potts and I will verify the statements,' said Nicholas. "'We will, sir,' replied the attorney, putting his memorandum-book in his pocket. "'We will.' 
The plans were then delivered to the custody of Sir Ralph, who promised to hand them over to Potts and Nicholas on the morrow. The party then separated, Mistress Nutter shaping her course towards the window where Alison and the two other young people were seated, while Potts, plucking at the squire's sleeve, said, with a very mysterious look, that he desired a word with him in private. Wondering what could be the nature of the communication the attorney desired to make, Nicholas withdrew with him into a corner, and Noel, who saw them retire, and could not help watching them with some curiosity, remarked that the squire's hilarious countenance fell as he listened to the attorney, while, on the contrary, the features of the latter gleamed with malicious satisfaction. Meanwhile, Mistress Nutter approached Alison, and beckoning towards her, they quitted the room together. As the young girl went forth, she cast a wistful look at Dorothy and her brother. "'Do you think with me that that lovely girl is well-born?' said Dorothy, as Alison disappeared. "'It were heresy to doubt it,' answered Richard. "'Shall I tell you another secret?' she continued, regarding him fixedly. "'If indeed it is a secret, for you must be sadly wanting in discernment if you have not found it out ere this. She loves you. "'Dorothy!' exclaimed Richard. "'I'm sure of it,' she rejoined. "'But I would not tell you this if I were not equally sure that you love her in return.' "'On my faith, Dorothy, you give yourself credit for wonderful penetration,' cried Richard. "'Not a whit more than I am entitled to,' she answered. "'Nay, it will not do to attempt concealment with me. If I had not been certain of the matter before, your manner now would convince me. I am very glad of it.' She will make a charming sister, and I shall be very fond of her. "'How you do run on, madcap!' cried her brother, trying to look displeased, but totally failing in assuming the expression. "'Stranger things have come to pass,' said Dorothy, "'and one reads in story-books of young nobles marrying village maidens in spite of parental opposition. I dare say you will get nobody's consent to the marriage but mine, Richard.' "'I dare say not.' he replied rather blankly. "'That is, if she should not turn out to be somebody's daughter,' pursued Dorothy. "'Somebody, I mean, quite as great as the heir of Middleton, which I make no doubt she will.' "'I hope she may,' replied Richard. "'Why, you don't mean to say you wouldn't marry her if she didn't?' cried Dorothy. "'I'm ashamed of you, Richard.' "'It would remove all opposition, at all events,' said her brother. "'So it would,' said Dorothy. "'And now I'll tell you another notion of mine, Richard. "'Somehow or other it has come into my head "'that Alison is the daughter of whom do you think?' "'Whom?' he cried. "'Guess,' she rejoined. "'I can't,' he exclaimed impatiently. "'Well, then, I'll tell you without more ado,' she answered. "'Mind, it's only my notion, and I've no precise grounds for it.' "'But in my opinion she's the daughter of the lady who has just left the room.' "'Of Mistress Nutter?' ejaculated Richard, starting. "'What makes you think so?' "'The extraordinary and otherwise unaccountable interest she takes in her,' replied Dorothy. "'And if you recollect, Mistress Nutter had an infant daughter who was lost in a strange manner.' "'I thought the child died,' replied Richard. "'But it may be, as you say.' "'I hope it is so.' "'Time will show,' said Dorothy. "'But I have made up my mind about the matter.' At this moment Nicholas Asherton came up to them, looking grave and uneasy. "'What has happened?' 
asked Richard anxiously. "'I have just received some very unpleasant intelligence,' replied Nicholas. "'I told you of a menace uttered by that confounded Potts on quitting me after his ducking. He has now spoken out quite plainly, and declares he overheard part of a conversation between Mistress Nutter and Elizabeth Device, which took place in the ruins of the convent church this morning, and he is satisfied that—' "'Well?' cried Richard breathlessly. "'That Mistress Nutter is a witch, and in league with witches,' continued Nicholas. "'Ah!' exclaimed Richard, turning deathly pale. "'I suspect the rascal has invented the charge,' said Nicholas. "'But he is quite unscrupulous enough to make it. "'And if made, it will be fatal to our relative's reputation, if not to her life.' "'It is false, I am sure of it,' cried Richard, torn by conflicting emotions. "'Would I could think so!' cried Dorothy, suddenly recollecting Mistress Nutter's strange demeanour in the little chapel, and the unaccountable influence she seemed to exercise over the old crone. "'But something has occurred to-day that leads me to a contrary conviction.' "'What is it? Speak!' cried Richard. "'Not now, no, not now,' replied Dorothy. "'Whatever suspicions you may entertain, keep silence, or you will destroy Mistress Nutter.' said Nicholas. "'Fear me not,' rejoined Dorothy. "'Oh, Alison,' she murmured, "'that this unhappy question should arise at such a moment.' "'Do you indeed believe the charge, Dorothy?' asked Richard, in a low voice. "'I do,' she answered in the same tone. "'If Alison be her daughter, she can never be your wife.' "'How?' cried Richard. "'Never, never!' repeated Dorothy emphatically. "'The daughter of a witch, be that witch named Elizabeth Device or Alice Nutter, is no mate for you.' "'You prejudge, Mistress Nutter, Dorothy,' he cried. "'Alas, Richard, I have too good reason for what I say,' she answered sadly. Richard uttered an exclamation of despair, and on this instant the lively sounds of tabor and pipe, mixed with the jingling of bells, arose from the courtyard, and presently afterwards an attendant entered to announce that the May-day revellers were without, and directions were given by Sir Ralph that they should be shown into the great banqueting-hall below the gallery, which had been prepared for their reception. End of chapter 7